you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke, the book of Luke chapter 1. This morning is exciting for me because we stand at the beginning of a new sermon series. This is exciting first because it's going to be the longest series we've ever done together. Uh, This is not because we're going to drag things out, but because the Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Although, uh, if it's any encouragement to you, I will tell you that our journey through this book will not take nearly as long as it has taken some other churches with their pastors to get through this book. Some of you may be familiar with uh, John MacArthur, who was a pastor in Southern California. It took him 10 years to get through Luke's Gospel to his church. Uh, It will not take us that long. It will take us about two years. The second reason I I am excited is because we'll be working through a gospel. The very first uh, book of the Bible that I preached straight through when I came here to Crossway was Mark's gospel. And next year when I hit my 10-year anniversary of being your pastor, a privilege that I greatly cherish, I will be preaching through a gospel again. And I cannot think of a better way to pass that mark in ministry than by doing just that. Without a doubt, I believe that every verse of every book of the Bible is equally inspired by God and worthy of our study, our belief, and our application to life. I believe that every part of Scripture is either foreshadowing or pointing to or is being fulfilled by or explaining the coming and the coming work and ministry and life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, there is something especially sweet about hearing the words of Jesus and seeing His ministry directly. And this is what Luke presents to us, the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to be seeing for the next two years in our time together on Sundays. This may cause us to ask, though, who is Luke? Who is this man who wrote this gospel that we're going to be studying? Well, he's mentioned three times explicitly in the New Testament. In Colossians 4, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So they are, he is with Paul, and he is among those that are sending greetings to the church at Colossae. In the letter to Philemon, we read, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And in Paul's final letter before his death, the book of 2 Timothy, he writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. Now from these three verses, we get a basic picture of the man Uh, that has written this gospel. First of all, we see that he is a physician. He is a doctor in the ancient world. More than that, he was a fellow worker with Paul in his ministry. He would have been traveling with Paul, helping him to teach and preach and start churches. Given the the beatings and the abuse and the hardships that Paul suffered, it's not unreasonable to assume that Luke was also something of a personal physician to Paul as he struggled with uh, various illnesses and, and disabilities from his work as an apostle. Finally, it's clear that things had gotten tough. You will recall that in the letter to Philemon that a man named Demas is part of the company of Paul's workers. He is with Paul along with others and with Luke. And then by the end of his life, though, uh, things have gotten rough and Demas is gone. Apparently this man who was, who was steady, who was uh, one that Paul could rely on, and now he's left and he's, he's gone back home, but not Luke. Paul says that Luke alone has remained with him to the very end as Paul himself anticipates his death. It's not hard to understand then why Paul would call Luke the beloved physician, one who was greatly loved by Paul and the churches. That's no small compliment to Luke, that he was loved by the Apostle Paul, surely for his faithfulness to Christ and the work. 
but we know more of him as well simply by virtue of his name Luke or Lucas in Greek is a Gentile name. It is very likely that Luke is a Gentile and that makes sense because he's writing a gospel to Gentiles. We know that because he is writing in such a way that he is explaining uh, the, the things about the Old Testament and things about uh, Jewish practice that a gospel like Matthew written to Jews doesn't, doesn't bother to do, it doesn't need to. But Luke is writing to Gentiles, those that have not grown up in, under the old covenant structures of Israel. They don't know about the Old Testament. They don't know about the Jewish lifestyle. One question we may have to ask, though, also, and knowing all this about Luke, is how do we know he's the guy that wrote this book? After all, Luke doesn't come out and say, I am Luke and I am the author of this book. In the introduction that we will read in just a few minutes, he, he gives us nothing of his name. In fact, the heading that we have uh, in our Bibles, the Gospel according to Luke, uh, is not something that was originally written down in the Bible. Rather, it is a heading given by uh, those early Christians who brought together the books of the New Testament into, into one book that we might know which Gospels we are reading. So how do we know that Luke was actually the guy who wrote it? How do we know that that heading is correct? Well, the main reason we know is that the earliest list of New Testament books from the 2nd century says that Luke wrote it. Uh, from the earliest documents we have, Luke's name is always attached to this book. And all of the early church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, people like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria, said that Luke was the author. Even a famous heretic who was writing against Luke and the other gospel writers, Marcion, he says that Luke was the author of this gospel. Given the fact there's nothing within the gospel of Luke itself or nothing we know from the New Testament that would prohibit Luke from writing, it's easy to trust the testimony of these early reliable witnesses to Luke's authorship. Probably the most important reason, though, that Luke was accepted as the author was because of what we've already seen, and that is his close association with the Apostle Paul. In fact, the church historian Eusebius reports that Paul used to begin quotes from the Gospel of Luke, quoting from this Gospel with this phrase, according to my Gospel, and then he would quote from the Luke. In other words, he was so closely related to Luke, even in the writing of this, and in the, in the research that Luke was being done, and in the transmission of the theology of Jesus and his teachings to Luke, that he considered this to be something of his own investment into the work of producing a Gospel. Once we see that Luke was the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, it becomes clear that he wrote another book in the New Testament as well, namely the book of Acts. In addition to the common writing style that is evident in both of these books, both books begin the same way, with an introduction, a greeting to this man named Theophilus. And in the book of Acts, we see a comment by the author talking about, in my previous book, saying, what I started there, I'm finishing here. In other words, in your Bible, Luke and Acts are actually part one and part two, a prequel and a sequel, as one person said, thankfully, without Jar Jar Binks to mess it up. A prequel and a sequel of the, the history of redemption of God's work in this new covenant. Focusing on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sending out of his apostles and the gospel message from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, just as Jesus promised. What that means then is having both written the Gospel of Luke and Acts, Luke becomes the person who has wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. Yes, Paul wrote more letters, but Luke has written more words. Luke is responsible for almost one-third of the New Testament that you hold in your hand. Thus, as one person has said, the debt we owe to Luke is tremendous. The only other question we have to ask about this book as we begin is this. Why did Luke write it? 
why did Luke write this gospel? To answer that question, we want to look at the first four verses of Luke this morning and hear from himself. For here he tells us why he wrote this gospel. I invite you to follow along in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, as I read. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to them, uh, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of God. These verses tell us why Luke wrote his gospel, what his gospel is all about, and what spiritual benefit we can hope to gain by reading it. In other words, from these opening verses, what I want us to see this morning is why we should pay close attention and listen to Luke's gospel over the coming months. First of all, we should listen because, number one, Luke's gospel explains the story of salvation. Luke's gospel explains the story of salvation. Notice again how he begins. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he says, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account. Luke says he's writing about the things that have been accomplished among us. What are those things? These are the things of the events that have unfolded in the life of Jesus at God's direction. They are those things that are the displays of divine grace that brought about the salvation of God's people. As we read, we will see one of the major themes of Luke's gospel concerns the plan of God, specifically what that plan is and how it is unfolded. And so time and time again, all kinds of uh, characters, uh, of real people and beings in this book, uh, angels and prophets and Jesus himself will, will say at some point, this is the plan of God and it's being fulfilled in your midst. More than that, Luke also quotes from several passages in the Old Testament showing that God is fulfilling them in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Thus, Luke wants us to see not what people are accomplishing, but what was being accomplished among people. The voice is passive, signaling to us, this is not what people are doing, this is what God is doing among and amidst His people. This is God's work. Famous uh, theologian and writer G.I. Packer said the secret to good Bible study, in his words, the secret to a soul-fattening Bible study is to read the text and first ask this question, what does this passage teach me about God? Now when I hear that, I know that for myself and I think for many others, our first temptation when we're reading the Bible is to ask this question, what does this mean about me? What does this have to do with me? And what Packer is saying is that's the wrong starting place. Because until you know who God is, until you know what God has done, you will never come to truly understand who you are supposed to be and what you are to do. And therefore, this is where Luke's focus is as well. It is pointing us not to, to so much to who we are and what we, should, what we should be and what we should do, although that is certainly an aim of his, but most directly, Luke is pointing us to what God has done. That's where he wants to draw our attention. And the center of that work to which God has done is the salvation of sinners. In chapter 19, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the closest thing you come to a mission statement by Jesus in this gospel. And what Luke shows throughout this gospel is Jesus doing just that. 
seeking out the lost, offering them encouragement as the Savior of the world, and then achieving salvation for them by his life, death, and resurrection. On the cross, Jesus stood in place of sinners. He bore the judgment of a holy God in their place. He came as a substitute for them, the perfect man in place of imperfect people. More than just imperfect, willfully rebellious people who openly and flagrantly turn away from God, disregarding the one who made us. And yet with compassion and love and mercy, Jesus comes to be the means of atonement that they might be right with God. And even today, all who would look to Christ in faith, all who would trust that it is by his life, death, and resurrection that we are made right with God, God still forgives and saves sinners. And what we see in Luke's gospel is that this salvation is offered to anyone and everyone. Luke goes out of his way to show how Jesus extended love and mercy and compassion to those that were not even thought of in society in his day. Those that are diseased, those that were poor and marginalized, those that were not cared for by society, they suddenly find Jesus in their midst, standing, staring, talking to them, face-to-face ministering to them, loving them. He gives them his attention. He gives them his grace. Ultimately, he gives them himself, bloody, beaten, and burdened with their sins under God's wrath on the Roman cross. It's that act of redemption, that act of atoning sacrifice that is the high point of the gospel. In fact, everything in Luke is leading up to that. All of the attention is put on the cross so that from chapter 1, verse 1, we are reading with anticipation of what is to come, namely the cross of Christ. This is not unique to Luke. We see this in all four Gospels. In fact, someone has said that the four Gospel books are really just a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Uh, if, you, if you do know what the, the passion is, that's what we, we commonly refer to the last week of Jesus' life. And when you look at the comparative time spent on any given part of Jesus' life, it's as if Luke and the other gospel writers are rushing through 30 years to suddenly hit the brakes for the last week of Jesus' life. That they are just shooting the highlight reel quickly on fast forward. And then they, they bring everything to a stop and say, now let's just sit and look. And chapter after chapter after chapter unfold the final days and hours of Jesus' life. Why? Because that is the focus of God's work. That is the apex of salvation. That is what it is all about. Jesus Christ hung on a cross before God and the world, making an atonement for sinners that they might be saved. In fact, such is the importance of those final days that later Paul could speak about all of his teaching about Jesus and God's work in saving sinners, as summarized in this phrase, the cross of Christ. This morning, even as we stand on the front edge of this great literary work which shows how God accomplished salvation for sinners, we have to ask ourselves if we have received that salvation. If we have looked to Christ, if we have seen him on the cross, if we have believed that that is the means by which we as sinners are made right with a holy God, it doesn't come any other way but by trusting in Christ, by looking to him in faith. Have we turned towards God in Christ and believed? Perhaps we have believed. Perhaps you're here with us this morning and we are Christians, and yet even as we hear, as we hear that gospel message, it seems boring to us. It seems old hat. It's gotten stale in our mind and our soul. Perhaps we've grown cold in our affection for God and the sense of wonder that should come when we hear of his work through the cross of Christ. 
over the next weeks and months and years, the call for us is to recapture that sense of wonder, to be brought humble and low and to glory in the cross of our Savior. Perhaps we have not believed, perhaps it's become stale because these things have have become more mythological than real in our minds. Maybe we think of Christ more as an ethereal idea rather than a man who walked the earth. Luke does not want to leave us with that option by the time we are finished with his gospel. This brings us to the second thing that we want to see as a reason for listening to Luke's gospel. It's because Luke's gospel reveals the facts of history. Luke's gospel reveals the facts of history. I've said it before and I will say it again. History is essential for Christianity. History is essential for Christianity. You have some religions and history is completely unimportant. Buddhism, for example, if you can prove somehow there's no such, there's no such person as the Buddha, doesn't matter. Because their belief is about a set of ideas. That's not true for Christianity. Christianity is belief in a person. And if that person is not real, if Christ is not real, you've got nothing. You have nothing. I, I know sometimes I, I, I still hear people using this kind of uh, defense of the faith argument with their lost friends and relatives that say goes something along the lines of, uh, if, if you're right and I'm wrong and Christ is not real and Christianity is bunk, I've lived a good life and I've not lost on anything. But if I'm right and you're wrong, if Christ is real and you've not believed in him, then you've lost everything. Can I tell you that's a terrible argument? Don't ever use that argument with somebody. It's terrible. Because Paul says explicitly, if Christ isn't real, we are hopeless. It is terrible. He, he says, we have been only been lying about God and who he is, but we have been living in a fantasy world. And of all people, if Christ is not real, we should be pitied. Why? Because history matters. It matters that, um, that God became flesh and walked among us, that he really healed the people that he healed, that he really taught the things that he taught, that he really suffered and died for our sins, and that in human form he truly rose back from the dead, glorious, alive forevermore. If you don't have those things, if those things aren't real, you've got no Christianity. We should close the shop and go do whatever we want to do because we are still dead in our sins, we're going to hell, and there's no hope for us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Luke here is wanting to show, he goes to great pains to show, that our beliefs are based on historical fact, historical reality of the God-made flesh. Listen again to how he went about writing his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Notice a couple of things here. First of all, Luke wasn't the first person to write down an account of the life and teachings of Jesus. He says many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things. Luke's gospel was written around A.D. 62, and it wasn't the first. In fact, uh, from our Bible, uh, we have the gospel of Mark that was written before Luke. And we know that in part because it's pretty clear Luke had Mark in front of him while he's writing. He incorporates um, things from Luke into his gospel. In fact, about half of Mark's gospel is found in the gospel of Luke where he's quoting him directly. That's not a problem. He's doing research, and he's saying, oh, here's a guy who is authoritative. Why? Because Mark spent time with Peter. 
And therefore, he, he's not only an eyewitness himself, but he has the, 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 the first among equals of the apostles teaching him and guiding his hand. It's a reliable source. I'm going to include it. And yet, and yet Luke goes his own way. In fact, sometimes his own personality and background come out. Consider this in Mark chapter 5, verse 26. We read about a woman with a hemorrhaging problem. Mark says, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Luke talks about the same thing. And in fact, in chapter 8, he says this, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, do you notice the difference? Mark says all the same information, but he adds, she suffered at the hands of physicians. You know what Luke drops out? Any reference to suffering at the hands of physicians. Good old Luke the doctor, defending his boys, right? There's other gospels around, but Luke has something to contribute as well. About half of Luke's gospel is original material to him not found in the other three books. Where did he get his information? Well, he tells us. He says when he wrote the gospel, he utilized those that were eyewitnesses. These were the people who were a part of the events about which he is writing. They had firsthand knowledge of what Jesus said and had done. It was these that became the foundation for the ministers of the word of the gospel of Christ, those that would teach the church and spread the truth of who Jesus was. Think about eyewitnesses. Have you ever talked with, with someone who's an eyewitness to a famous event in history? You know, sometimes, uh, you know, you, you, read, you learn about all kinds of amazing things in school, but then you're fortunate enough to actually talk to someone who was there. And I think one of the most amazing uh, times when this happened to me was uh, my first mission trip in high school. And one of the guys that went with us uh, was, was an older fellow. I knew his name. I'd seen him around church a lot, but I never talked to this man other than to say, hi, and how are you? And uh, the Lord is risen on Easter Sunday. That, that was it. And uh, late night conversations, there's only five or six of you, uh, you, you get to know people uh, really well. And somehow he got talking about his experiences in World War II. And this man was telling me about how he had been in the European theater of operations, about he had been in one of the units that went in and liberated France towards the end of the war. In fact, he had been at the invasion of, uh, of, of Normandy on Omaha Beach. And if you don't know what that is, that's the first 40 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that's what they're reenacting there is, is that invasion. And suddenly, all that stuff that I'd heard in history class took on a whole new meaning. But what I thought about this guy took on all new meaning. All of these things, these amazing things, how anyone could have survived the invasion of Normandy, I have no idea. And yet, here is a man by God's grace who did. And he's telling me about the things that he saw, about the things that he experienced, the things that he heard. The food that he tasted. Talking to people like that, you get not just the facts of information, you get their feelings, you get their experiences, you get more detail. Sometimes in history class, you get, you, you, you get corrections on the books, you get things wrong. There's a greater sense of reality now for those events to us when we talk to people like that. And that's the kind of people Luke is hunting down. They were part of the events of Christ's life, and he wants to find them and talk with them. He's talking to people who knew Jesus and saw Jesus and experienced the miracles and the work and ministry of Jesus. Then you have these great comments that help us to know, hey, Luke, talk to that person. They're an eyewitness, and he actually found them and talked to them and wrote down what happened. Probably one of my favorites is when Jesus is a child. He's the only one that gives us these child narratives of Jesus. You know, we read in chapter 2, verse 51, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Now, how can Luke know that? You know, the, the, the Bible that we have was not delivered the same way other supposedly 
uh, holy books were. You know, so for Muhammad and, and the Koran, he supposedly went into a trance, a vision, and just began writing down what, what was dictated to him. That's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written by real people who had real concerns and real intentions and ideas about what they were writing. And God had so supernaturally come into their life and filled them with his spirit that while Paul wrote the letter that he wanted to write to Corinthians, it also was the letter that God wanted him to write to the Corinthians. And it becomes preserved in his scripture for us. So, so no one, a voice from heaven does not whisper and say, hey, Mary treasured all these things in her heart, Luke, write that down. That didn't happen. He went and found Mary. He, he talked to the mother of Jesus and said, tell me what Jesus was like as a child. What, what was it like when he was born? Uh, and and she, she begins to tell these stories. And she tells him, you know, I didn't know all that was going on at the time, but I just treasured these things in my heart because I knew what the angel had told me was true, and that he would be the Savior of the world. You can imagine others he's talked to, people who saw Jesus heal others. Then he went and talked to the actual person who was healed. He talked to people who heard Jesus teach, and he wrote down what they remembered him saying. Then he went and talked to others and verified that what that person remembered was true. Then as you read Luke, you see him giving names of people all all the time. Not famous people. He's not a name dropper in that sense. But it's the names of everyday people who had encountered Jesus. Why is he telling us that? Because he wants us to know these people were real. They were eyewitnesses. They experienced this. And I talked to them so that now you can know what they knew. Finally, he says he wants to write down an orderly account as one who has followed all things closely for some time. This wasn't some half-baked idea that Luke got in his head and worked on for a few days and was done. This is something he was intensely interested in and gave considerable time to. And the result that we have, this classic work of literature, let alone scripture, is a testament to his efforts and the amazing work of God. The account of Christ is orderly, not just in the quality of its presentation, but in its design to put Christ forward again and again and again and again. And the mind's eye of those listening to it being read and those reading it for themselves people who received Luke's gospel weren't there. They, they, were, they were Gentiles spread out all over the Roman Empire. They had no idea who this Jesus was. They had not seen him. They had not heard him. And Luke says, let me present him for you. Let me show you him in all of his earthly glory that you might see and believe and be confident in your belief that it's all true. Even today, we stand Almost 2,000 years separated from these events. How are we to believe unless we have the testimony of eyewitnesses? It's not simply enough to trust that, well, my parents believed that and so I should believe it. No, go back to the people who were there. Go back to the people who saw Jesus perform the miracles, who heard him teach truth, who saw him dying on a cross for your sins, and trust the testimony of historical fact. Why is... Why is Luke striving for such detail and authenticity in his work? It's for that very reason that we might be strengthened in our faith. This is the third and final reason we should listen. Because Luke's gospel produces the certainty of faith. It produces the certainty of faith. Luke says, I've compiled this narrative. I've written up this orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Who is this Theophilus? Some have tried to argue he's not a real person. He's fictional. He, he is a cipher for anybody who picks up Luke's gospel. It, it's kind of a generic invitation to the reader that we see in some modern books because his name means friend of God. 
Well, the only problem with that is the way that Luke addresses him. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. And that is a very specific, formal term of address for an important government official. And so we see uh, people using that in the book of Acts. Men like Felix and Judea are addressed as most excellent Felix. Later, the governor, Festus, in chapter 24, the same way, most excellent Festus. Scholars are in agreement that Theophilus was a real person. And based on the title that is used, it's probable that he was a wealthy man of some importance. Based on his name, Theophilus was in fact a Gentile. And based on the fact that he had been already taught the things of God, it seems pretty clear that he had, been, he had heard the gospel, he had been taught the gospel, he had believed the gospel, and now, and now Luke is writing to assure him. In fact, some scholars believe that this man actually funded the project that we have now as Luke's gospel. That Luke had interaction with this man, and, and he said, well, you know, we, we just imagine the author saying, so, so Jews really said and did those things. He's like, yeah, they're, they're eyewitnesses that are still around in Jerusalem and Judea and all over. And Theophilus say, man, wouldn't it be great to have a record of those things? And Luke says, well, yeah, I mean, I've followed these things closely for some time, and I've, I've got some notes. And he says, well, would you take this on? Uh, would you go and do the research and, and, and write up this biography of Jesus that we might have it? And he says, absolutely. So he gives them money to travel and to, to, to eat and to live and for supplies like, like parchment and quills and ink and all these things and sends him off. That very well could be the case. Regardless, though, it is clear that Luke is writing to this man, Theophilus, knowing that others will stand, as it were, over his shoulders reading Luke's gospel as well. In that sense, it's kind of a, an open letter, an open document that he's writing to give them certainty about the truths of Christianity. You know, today we live in an age of skepticism. We live in a day when our news sources present us with things that are supposed to be truth, yet it is often selective truth, spun in such a way as to drive an angle or an agenda. We get emails from people suggesting that certain things are true and certain events have happened when the reality is no such thing is, is true even possible. For the record, Mr. Rogers was not a Marine Corps sniper who wore long sweaters to cover his tattoos. That's wrong. He was a Presbyterian minister. So hit delete when you get that email as it comes by every, every year or so. When we live in this kind of an age, it becomes easy to be, to be wary of anything that sounds too good to be true or too dogmatic. And here we have an author who would have fit in great in our age because he's not satisfied with secondhand information. He's not satisfied with something that might be rumor or exaggerated memory. He went to the eyewitnesses and verified the information. And this wasn't just information about some news story. This was about the central issue of life. How can I be right with God? How can a sinner have peace with the Almighty? And Luke shows us that while we weren't there, that we weren't eyewitnesses of these things, we can have confidence in the truthfulness of what we have been taught. We can have confidence in the truths of Christianity. We can have assurance that Jesus is the Christ, that he did die a death for sinners, that he did rise bodily from the dead, and that it's the proclamation of his name that brings salvation to all who believe. Luke is putting together the evidence for people like Theophilus who have struggled with assurance and wondered things like, can I, a Gentile, really be part of the people of God? That's not what the Jews are saying. Can, can I... Can I really be confident that Christ is the Savior of the whole world? That I'm not dependent upon some other God somewhere? Luke writes and says, yes, you can be certain. Yes, you can have assurance. And part of that certainty, again, comes from the kind of testimony and the research that Luke put together. 
You know, decades ago, scholars, secular scholars used to deride Luke and say, oh, he's a terrible historian. He gets all of his facts wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he really didn't talk to any of these people. And they would point to a passage like chapter 3, verse 1, where he calls Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene. And they say, see, he's got it all wrong. There's no record of a Lysanias except the one who came much later than these events described in the Gospel of Luke. A few decades go by, and some archaeologists dig up some old records, and there they find on a piece of rock an inscription, quote, to the freedmen of Lysanias the Tetrarch. And it's dated to fit perfectly when Luke said he was around, proving he knew exactly what he was talking about. When you look at the accuracy of his description of towns and cities and islands, as well as the correct naming of various official titles, which changed every few years. Can you imagine if, if the president wasn't always called the president, if he was called uh, this, that, or the other, whatever name he come up with, every 5, 10, 20 years? You would be able to tell if somebody got that name wrong whether or not they were really there. And it, it's proven over and over again, Mark gets the details, or excuse me, Luke gets the details right. So does Mark, but we're not looking at his gospel. In all these things, then archaeologist Sir Michael Ramsey writes this, quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He should be placed among the very greatest of historians. Likewise, professor of classics at Auckland University, E.M. Blakelock, a man who was, who was familiar with Plato and Socrates and Thucydides and all these ancient documents, he says, Luke's writing is not a shoddy product of pious imagining but a trustworthy record. It is the spade work of archaeology which first revealed the truth. Because of the reliability of the witnesses given to us in this book, we should come away from our study with a greater assurance in the truthfulness of God's word and his work of salvation through Christ. Our lives should be steadied on the rock of certainty we see in the work of God through these pages. In fact, when I think about the next two years, when I think about us soaking our lives in this gospel and hearing and seeing the glory of our Savior. My hope, my hope for us together as a church is the same longing that another man, John Piper, had after he had studied the gospels intently for some time. He says this, and, I, and in reading this I want you to know, this is my ongoing prayer for us for the next two years. He says, I've been spending much of my personal devotional time meditating on the words of Jesus and the way he acted. The result has been that I love this man with a newly felt longing. I long for his single-minded devotion to his Father's will to rub off on me. I long to share his profound understanding of the human heart and his ability to see through all the layers of our lives and into our heart. I long to have his way with words, words that always laid bare a person's real loves. I long like Mary to sit at his feet and drink in the living water of his teaching until it so satisfies my heart that I can be as free as he was from the love of money and from the love of praise of men and from anxiety about tomorrow. I have come away from the Gospels hungry to be holy, to be real and authentic, not to play church or play religion and not to fritter away my short life with non-essentials. All these longings and this hunger have driven me to pray to prayer that God would work over me and not allow me to creep along so slowly in my quest for Christ-likeness. May God's grace be at work in our lives, that that is the longing we have as well. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are especially thankful for these gospels that show us so clearly your son. And I pray, God, that even this morning we will, we will have the appetites of our souls whetted for what is to come in the days that follow. 
Father, that we will, we will come longing to hear more of Jesus, our Savior, what he did and who he was and what he told those that heard him teach. Father, help us to crave the glory of your Savior, that we might trust in him, that we might love him more than we have before, and that our lives might be changed to imitate him in all that we do. Father, this is my prayer this morning. It's in his name we ask it.